Hey, Rita Church, we are day five, I think part, part eight of our series, The Gospel According to Genesis, and we'll see how the gospel fits in there nicely today. Um, I'm going to begin with a couple of news articles. This, this is so new. February 22nd, 2022. I mean, what is today? The 27th? Literally, this is five days ago. Uh, this is according to NBC News. Uh, Denise Chow um, reports on fossils that were <coughs> that found. Uh, so, <coughs> excuse me, a flying reptile, probably the biggest flying reptile, and is known as the Petrosaurus or Petrosaur. I don't know if we have another slide there. Uh, this is an artist rendition. They got the bones and everything, and they kind of slapped on some artist rendition. This is what they found um, at the excavation site. Um, they roughly estimated to be seven, no, excuse me, 170 million years old and wingspan of eight feet. Um, I, <clears throat> they believe is roughly equivalent to the size of a modern-day albatross. But as I give you this first thing, I think they got the wing size right. But I'm not sure if they got the date right. And so we'll talk about that. But I, I just want to paint that right there. So this is a legit, um, these are legit fossil find. Um, but my question is, how long ago does this? And I, I believe 100% that the Bible answers this question. So that's something that flies in the air. Now, we're gonna, now I ask, to ask Google this other question. What, so the first question I ask is, according to modern scientists, what is the oldest flying thing? Now I'm going to ask, what is the oldest creature um, that was in the water, okay, according to modern scientists? This is very new, too. Um, ABC News, um, <coughs> this person named uh, Bo Bofa, um, according to December 6, 2018, found this fossil that was... 180 million years old, and basically it was preserved sea monster known as a flying lizard, and it's called an ichthyosaur, and it kind of looked like that. You might have seen it in some movie chasing around the little fish, all right? And earlier in this series, I, I, I put out this question, and I, I sent slanted the wrong way, but I'm trying to come more level. When it comes to science, I just want to say there's biblical, there's good science and bad science. And my hope is that we would be able to biblically discern or discern biblically. And so as we consider these two examples, and there's many others, I can't, I don't have time for exhaustive seminar of doctoral lectures and studies, but are, are these, is this water and air creature truly 700, 170 and 180 million years old? And will answer that question. And if so, how do the scientists know this? And if not, um, how do we know it to be true or not? And so we'll answer this question some today and some um, next week. But for this morning, um, we're going to learn um, about water and air creatures that were created by God on Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, on day 5 of the creation week, so that we might know what and why we believe according to God's word. And we're going to look at God's word from Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, that Manny read um, in a normal face value language. And so on day five, leading up to day five in the creation week, we know what? God has made an environment on the earth, and it's a realm that what? 
we could breathe, there's oxygen, it's safe from, you know, the atmosphere and the space. And he also, up to this point, he actually created the space, the stars and everything out there in the planets. And <laughs> he set that into motion and he sustained those. And so now at day five, God's focusing now on filling the earth, particularly here, things in the water and the sky. Next week, we'll hit the things on land, okay? So the first thing I want you to note that God makes it a, a clear distinction with things that are plant life versus animal life. Things that are plant life versus animal life. We understand in natural science or evolutionary theory, um, it's kind of one and the same. They, they believe that plant life, or even before plant life, like amino acids, um, became plant life in water, and somehow these plant life grew legs and walked and became land creatures, and the other ones grew, la grew wings and started to fly. That's the order, basically, of natural or evolutionary science or theory. Um, but in the Bible, I want you to see that God makes a distinction between plant life and animal life. Um, nowhere in the scriptures does it say that animal, I mean, excuse me, Trees and plants are living creatures, all right? They're not living creatures, and nor do they have a soul, okay? Um, but in contrast, the Bible, what we're going to talk about today, declares and specifies um, that there are living creatures. There's animals, there's insects, there's birds, there's fish, there's humans, and they have um, a nervous system, and they also have, um, and also they're all <coughs> they're categorized as living creatures creatures. Uh, so I want you to, to see that, the, the language that's being used to distinguish um, living creatures versus non-living creatures. And those who are living creatures are what we're talking about today, things that are on the creatures that are alive in the water and in the air. And next week, we'll talk about the ones that will move and function on the land. But let me draw your attention to Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. We see here God follows the same pattern as he works through Moses, as he gives a command in the passage, he fulfills it. And then he says, it gives an assessment and declares it to be good. And it gives a, a conclusion or a closure. And we see the same style of writing all the way through. And I think he does this for a reason. He's just stating it. He, st he speaks. God demonstrates his power, fulfills it. God does what he says. He declares what he says is good. And he says, hey, this is how it happened in this time frame. So verse 20, God commands living creatures in the water and land to be formed. We see here that Moses writes in verse 20, God said, God spoke, um, and we, we remember from the previous messages that God is almighty. He's the creator. He can make anything, and he makes everything out of nothing. Um, he's holy. He's just. He's so much. But here we understand him to be creator God, and God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Okay, I want you to see that there's a lot of stuff going on here. And I'll just kind of lay out section by section here. God commands. So literally, God is in the process of populating the seas and the skies. Um, and so the hydrosphere and the atmosphere are basically going to be populated. And, I, and this is a big deal because prior to this happening, there was no creatures in the water and no creatures in the sky. Well, we're used to it because we're, we're, we've been living, you know, whatever, 10 years, 5 years, 30 years, some of us 60 years. And we're used to seeing stuff in the sky and things in the water. 
But up to this point, there was nothing in the water and nothing in the sky. It was just water and just air in the sky. But in, on this day, day five, God is going to speak and he's going to fill both the water and the air and the skies. And that's a, a big deal. And he does so, God does so by decree. When God speaks, um, he does so via fiat. He creates everything out of nothing. He does it by the spoken word. Um, there's another thing I want to highlight to you is in that verse 20, you see a word repeated twice. You guys see it there right at the beginning? Tell me what word that is. It starts with the letter S. Swarms. swarms. And it says again, swarms with swarms. Kind of weird, right? Um, it actually plays it out in your probably NASB or ESV Bible pretty well. It's a very much a literal translation there. But that's, um, we're going to go to a little bit of Hebrew grammar for the fun of it. Um, <clears throat> deliberately, there's redundancy where the, a similar Hebrew word is repeated twice. And this is called a paranomesia. And it's basically, it's a literary device to emphasize these swarms of swarms. In other words, he's just saying, hey, there's a whole bunch of fish. Um, we saw this. Same literary device, I didn't point it out last time, but it was in the message last week, I believe, in verse 11, you see another word repeated twice. In verse 11, do you see that? Or the idea? Verse 11. I'm just checking if you actually use your Bible, because I don't want to grow up and raise a Catholic church that doesn't know their Bible, because typically they don't. They, they, they read these little specialized things, they wait for the the priest to speak to them. So I want you guys to know your Bibles. So I'm trying to force it open a little bit. But verse 11, you see, let the earth, let the earth be with vegetate and veget with vegetation, swarms of swarms. So basically, this grammar, um, Hebrew grammar, this literary device is literally pointing out that vegetation and swarms of creatures in the water will be what? Of abundance. God is going to make a lot of this, um, a lot of creatures. And there's some uniqueness with plants that are stationary with these creatures. They move, they move around, so there's difference. But I want, you, I want to point out that what? There was none, and there was not just some. There was a lot of creatures, um, a lot of vegetation and a lot of water creatures up to this point. And so this is all done by the command of God's very voice. And so we see in verse 21, God fulfills his very command. So what God says, he does. Um, it's a good thing that God does what he says, or else will make him a kind of a liar and not a promise keeper. So it's not someone, not a God that we will want to follow or trust or put our lives in. I want. Um, but our, the God of the Bible basically says, and he does, and he keeps his promises and he fulfills them. And he says, I'm going to create. Well, he does, and he does it right away. He didn't make us wait long. Uh, verse 21, we see God fills the water and the creatures with <clears throat> according to its kind. In verse 21, Moses writes, So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kind, every winged bird according to its kind. So this is, again, a lot being said here, but verse 21, it explicitly says that God is the creator. God created via, or through this term and idea, bara. When God creates, he speaks 
um, <coughs> what he wants and desires out of nothing. He does it instantaneously. He does. He doesn't set an evolutionary process. He makes these animals in the air and in the seas at full functioning, full size. Um, <coughs> and he doesn't set it in motion and say, hey, let's let it go for several million years or billions of years to allow that evolutionary process. He speaks it and he makes it fully formed. Um, let me give you a quick side question to ask this question. When it comes to Adam, when he was formed, do you believe that he was created as a baby? Or let's go further back. Do you believe that he was created at the embryonic stage? Or was Adam created at fully adult stage? Fully mature. Fully mature. Fully not evolved, right? Fully created as an, a man, right? I don't know why. It's interesting. We struggle with that. We don't struggle with Adam as much, or even Eve. I mean, he, she came out of a rib, fully formed. Didn't, it wasn't birthed through Adam or anything like that. Both of them were fully formed. And the same idea that we can embrace, that like Adam and Eve were created as men and women, we can understand that each of these animals were made with the capacity to reproduce. And I'll, I'll prove that to you at the end. You'll see it. The hint is verse 23 here. But... Um, these creatures that God made, and so on the same token, do you believe the creatures of the sea were created? Fully formed, with no evolutionary process in play. And so, can God do it? I, I believe he can. And God did so as living creatures. And he, I think it's fascinating, he emphasized that these are great creatures. These are big creatures. From the very get-go, I believe he made whales. Big, big whales. He made stingrays, great white sharks, giant squid, and so many other great sea creatures, big creatures. I don't know how to answer this. You know, does a Loch Ness monster fit in there? There's a lot of legend around that. Maybe, possibly. I, I believe if it does exist, God made it. Um, if it doesn't exist, well, then, you know, it's a shadow out there in some swampy land. But I'll just put, out, put it out there because that comes up. In different mystery things. But if it is, God made it. If it isn't, um, you know, it doesn't exist. Verse 21 will go on and we'll see that the, there's a, a Hebrew noun I want to highlight that every living thing, um, these creatures are, are living. Um, and they're, they're from a Hebrew word. This phrase, every living thing, living is what I'm trying to highlight here, comes from a Hebrew word, nephesh. And it's translated soul. And we see in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that when the Lord formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, the man became a what else? A living creature. So I just want to highlight both animals, humans, sea creatures, all are living creatures. But the distinction with men or and women, human beings, they have a soul that will last forever. Okay? When they put out movies that say like all dogs will go to heaven. I want you to know dogs don't have a soul, and there's no heaven. I'm so sorry if you love dogs, or if you work for Rover, or whatever. These dogs don't have a future in heaven, nor, nor do the cats, nor do any of the animals, okay? There's no heaven for them. There's no redemption for them. I don't even know there's a fall for them, like they have a sin nature, but I, I don't know. Maybe they do have a sin nature. I'm joking, okay? The Bible doesn't talk about it in those terms, but all of the world is fallen to a certain degree, including the animals, because they also die too, so that's a lot of tangent there. 
All right, but the idea and the thing I want to focus on is the word nephesh, and it is God who breathes what? Life into humanity and into these animals. But this specifically what's unique is humans have a soul. Animals and creatures um, do not. But I do want you to see this from the get-go. When God made these creatures, these living creatures, he did so... um, as living creatures. He didn't begin with non-nephish or non-living matter and involved become to become living creatures. From the very get-go, God made them as living creatures. Um, there was no process, uh, no evolution. Literally, God spoke and he made living creatures. So what kind of living creatures did he make? Well, we'll begin with the sea creatures. Um, we said there's great sea creatures and there's living creatures that are in the water and they swarm with waters and swarms. And so um, there's all kinds of creatures. I'll just give out some of them for the fun of it. But I want you to see that God created them as they are. Um, and so he created plankton. And so these are small little drifting plants. Um, and a lot of fish eat them. And he also made porpoises. He made krill. And he made killer whales. I believe he made otters. They're more water creatures and land creatures. And he made octopus. Seahorse, jellyfish, swordfish, I wanted to say starfish, um, but all these different fish, um, God made them according to his design as the designer, as the one whose intellect was behind in creating each of these creations. God made coral, and God made crab, and I believe that God made the seagoing dinosaurs. Okay, and all of this happened. 500 million years ago? No, on day five. All these creatures were created on day five. Okay, every one of these, even if they're small or big, they're all created on day five according to God's word. Okay, this is a little bit of fun stuff, but if I were to think of myself, what kind of animal would I want to be? I would not choose to be a sea creature, a sea cucumber. You guys see what a sea cucumber is? They look like that, they're kind of ugly. But, you know, people buy these things, and they cook them up, and they're really expensive. Um, But I don't like them. (laughs) I've tried it, and I don't really care for them. But if I were a sea creature, I would want to be an archer fish. Do you guys know what an archer fish is? That's the one on the right. They're cool fish in the sense they live in both saltwater and freshwater. They're often found in the Southeast Asia part. But they have this unique tongue where they're able... Well, the upper part of the palate of the mouth is grooved, and they could spit a jet, jet water to shoot water, like a squirt gun, at bugs on a, a branch or a leaf and shoot those things down. And they, supposedly, they have great binocular vision to be in the water, see through the water, and hit these uh, bugs and knock them off the branch and then eat them. So I think they're the coolest creatures. So if I wanted to be one, this one would be cool. I'd do it for a day, maybe. I don't know. This is this fun stuff. But people will go on and ask some of these other questions. How could the arch, arch or fish have evolved with such skills? Was it a survival instinct that they had to develop or evolve in order to survive? And the truth of the matter is that archer fish can eat just like any other fish. They don't need to use this technique to survive. They could eat just like every other fish. But this particular archer fish, God saw it in his creative pleasure to give them 
a little extra ability. And some people say that, like, they, it's almost like sport for them. If they want to eat one way, they can. If they want to eat another way, they can do that way too. And so there's archer fish for the fun of it. Um, so all these creatures, sea creatures, I want you to know all have DNA, and they're all created with a genetic code. I can't go into all of it, but some of you guys are scientists and understand this. But with the DNA that every creature has, they're able to, <coughs> to reproduce after their own kind. All right? And to know if they're part of the same kind, you basically have different creatures come together. If they could come together and make a creature out of their own kind, they can. If the creatures come together, you put like a starfish and a seahorse together, they can make their own kind, great. But I don't think they can because they have different type of DNA that won't um, mix or collaborate well together. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, if you could go online, it would be fascinating what kind of animals and what kind of things interbreed together, what kind of fruit, that's more common in our thinking. But the Bible says um, <clears throat> there's coded language and each <clears throat> kind is able to reproduce after their own kind. I'll get a little bit more technical on what that looks like. So animals, I believe, adapt. Um, uh, <clears throat> and so they can look a little bit different. Um, some theologians will even call this microevolution. Um, and so we can see a fit for that. But no, we're not saying theologically and biblically that there's a place for macroevolution. DNA doesn't answer that. Um, <coughs> scientists know that literally things can't jump to different kinds. And so these are the two different pictures we're looking at on the next slide. Either you believe in evolution, which basically states that there was nothing, and out of nothing became something, and there's one particular origin that developed all the plants and the animals and the human beings and so forth. Or there's a creation orchard, and we'll just be, take it, the, since we're going through sea life, God set up multiple sea lives, and they developed from an orchard standpoint according to their respective kinds. Hopefully that makes sense to you. Um, <clears throat> we'll talk about mutations later, but... Without a doubt, God created from the get-go and he made them full size. He didn't have to wait for a series of mutations or an evolutionary process for him to create what God created. So that's that. Um, a few fun facts is about 200, no, excuse me, 2,000 water creatures. Most of them, the majority of them actually eat underwater plant. Um, some eat other, other fish and other creatures. And so... But the thing that's most interesting and most fascinating to me is that God made all this on one day. Nothing was in the water, and God, what? Filled the water with all kinds of creatures. And so, as we transition to the air creatures, I want to give you a quick video. I think it's two minutes long to introduce things that fly. Hopefully this works. <laughs> look at that video, but I can't help to think one particular thing, that there's an incredible designer that designed birds specifically from the very get-go to fly, has all the engineering mechanics, muscle structure, bone structure, to do that. And they don't even need to be taught birds 
fly pretty, some of them fly from the very get-go. And I mean, I, we live in what? North Carolina, where the Wright brothers figured out how to fly, sort of. If you guys go to like the Outer Banks, you can see man's efforts to fly and create engineering abilities to do so. But birds were created to do so, what? From the very get-go. And so we see in this passage that it is God who created every winged bird. Um, he made them um, fully bird with the capacity uh, <coughs> to, they mo- made them fully bird as complete birds from the get-go. Um, they didn't begin as amino acids. They didn't begin with reptiles and reptiles transition to, to wings. Um, there's people that are those who will dig fossils and excavate grounds. And if it, it took nearly 200 million years to do all these transitions, these fossils would be all over the earth. And those who do archaeology or fossil studies in that way, they say there's no fossil records of this type of transition from reptiles to birds. Um, If they were, there would be millions and millions. If it's millions of years, there'll be millions of what? Fossil records all over the place. And it's just not there. It just doesn't exist. If you just look at the raw data, it is not there. Um, but God, we know the truth about God created birds the same way he created everything else. Barah, he created them out of nothing, each according to their own kind with the ability to f- fly. God doesn't need an evolutionary process. And when he created winged birds, he created different types of winged birds. They're fascinating. There's birds with wings that have feather. You see a whole bunch of them there. He created insects that have these membranes or thin <coughs> scales, and they, this is how insects fly. And there's a whole bunch of them, and there's all kinds of God-ordained engineering that went along with that. I'm not going to go into it, but you could see this is good science. If you can study the engineering that God brought to birds to fly, insects to fly, and study that, that's good science to recognize, yeah, this is amazing work that God did in engineering and creating. That's intelligent design behind there. We see bats. Bats are fascinating. Um, and there's dinosaurs, the same dinosaur we looked at the very, from the very get-go on the next slide. Um, there's good science there, just breaking down the mechanics of how these animals flew. Um, I don't know what, is, what stands out to you more, um, what's more <coughs> interesting to you, day four or day five. If you remember on day five, God created, well, day four, God created the stars and the planets And that's amazing. That's vast and intense creative power there to make the universe. But day five, I think it's just as comparable. All the amazing creatures that God made on the earth. Both of them, what he created on day four and day five, speaks of what? God's wisdom, his power, his design. And really, if anything, I think all glory goes to God to create the universe and the things on this earth. At the end of day five, God made an assessment um, in <coughs> Genesis 1.21. God observed, we see here, and God saw that it was good. God looked at all his creation on this day, and he said, it was good. He made this straight-up assessment. He didn't say it was bad. He didn't say it was so-so. He didn't say it was awful. 
He didn't say, I need to wait for a process. He didn't say, I need to wait for millions and billions of years to take place so they could evolve to the creature I hope they would be or might be down the road. No, God literally said, here's my creation, and it is good, straight up. And as he closes his day, verses 22 and 23, God gives closure. And, <clears throat> and Moses does something different than he hasn't done in the previous days. Moses pins God's blessing and a command here in verse 22. God, and it said, God blessed them, all the creatures he made in the water and in the air. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. He gives a command. It's the same command he's going to give Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. God gives a pronouncement of blessing. God says, hey, my creation is good, and he wants to see his creation go forth. And so he wants his blessing to, <coughs> he, he blessed it so that it would be a blessing. And so God's <coughs> heart and his design and his intent that all his creation would multiply and be fruitful and that it would fill the earth and God would be glorified. And so Again, I want you to see this very carefully. It's not very difficult to see. In verse 22, God blessed them, and he says what? Be fruitful and to, be, and to multiply. Okay? So for the respective kinds, whether they're sea creatures or air creatures, he tells them respectively what? Be fruitful and to multiply. And when I touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, DNA, the coding, the genetics, everything that's involved with that are only able to do so according to its own kind, where it's compatible. Where DNA doesn't match up, it's not compatible, it's not going to reproduce. So DNA contains <coughs> nucleotides with what? Genetic coding to produce all the respective um, creatures in terms of size, composition, whether... <coughs> This, in terms of systems, organs that they all have. Um, <clears throat> that's how good science works. Um, it's able to observe and make solid conclusions <laughs> about genetics and reproduction. And so we praise God for good science in that area. Maybe we'll talk about mutations. Some people say, yeah, what about mutations? Um, understand this about mutations. Um, when mutations happen, scientists... <laughs> Across the board, um, <clears throat> most time when mutations happen, they're genetic mistakes. They're not genetic benefits. Um, <clears throat> mutations are usually not helpful, but harmful. Understand that's mutation. Sometimes scientists may think, okay, let's look at 100 mutations or even 1,000 mutations. They go, maybe this one out of 1,000 is kind of good, is better than worse. But that's one, and that's, there's, that means out of 1,000, there's still 999 that were not so good mutations. So what are you going to get after thousands of years of mutation? It's going to look pretty terrible if you have so many bad mutations combined with one good mutation, even if it's good. So <clears throat> that's a little bit of that when it comes to mutations. Um, but just think really practically. Um, what, if you're going to think in an evolutionary process and you're saying, hey, you have amino acids, and it somehow develops what? The capacity to have brains 
and legs and the capacity to what? Either grow lungs and walk on the earth or have the capacity to breathe underwater and have gills. That's pretty intense stuff. Um, <clears throat> I mean, even as a human being, I used to do these little tricks with my dad. I used to go under the water as long as I can. And I thought if I did that a lot, I'd have gills. <laughs> and I remember I would try to stay in the water so long that it would make my dad panic and jump in and save me. And sometimes he did because he literally thought I was dead in the swimming pool because I would just do the dead man's float that we learned in swimming lessons. And he would jump in the water thinking I'm dead. Um, but anyways, that's just side things. I mean, I really tried to grow gills by staying in the water a lot and it just it didn't happen. Um, I still have lungs. And they still breathe, and it's, I don't think it's evolving into gills. It's just not happening. I, I don't know if I could live a billion or trillion years, and you know there'll be gills one day if I stay in the water a lot. Um, but seriously, God, I don't think mutations will create gills or great lungs. These are things that are made by the hand and the intellect of God. Um, there's a long quote here basically saying the same idea, and it begs the bottom line question. Can this happen out of thin air, evolution? Can it happen by more years, by pure chance? Um, I think no. Um, I think, I mean, this really practically can things created come out of nothing? If you, if you could get a, a bunch of random noise, well, you know, somehow create a Bach cantata. If you could get a monkey to type on your computer, are you going to get Shakespeare? Um, Every time we hear what good music or read solid literature, you know it has an author, a, compo a composer, uh, <clears throat> uh, one who composed this music or wrote this literature. Um, it points back always to a creator. So when you look at what? The creation in the seas and the creation in the air, it points back to a creator, God the creator. So um, as we wrap up day three, verse 23 says as it closes out day five, and then there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. Over and over, God did this one day at a time. He could have done it more time, and he could have done less time. But I don't believe that God has a speech impediment. He clearly meant day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. Um, it's pretty straightforward in, in the original language and in the English um, and our whole week is based off this mindset. So I don't believe God is dead, God is tired, or, or, or need many years. God is the creator, and he designed exactly what he wanted to design. And so in conclusion, I have probably three applications that this kind of flow from this. On one, according to the Bible, either you're going to believe in the God who creates, or you're going to bow down to, I believe, one of the schemes of this world. Um, Practically, when I think of creation, either you could, well, I'll just point out the positive here. In the most affirmative sense, when I look at God's creation in the earth or in the water and in the skies, God is most marvelous. He's most marvelous. Um, we could spend our time wondering if there's mutations or not. And we could think Marvel movies are pretty cool, and, and they are. But if you look, even Marvel movies have to come from somewhere. God made the Marvel directors and the actors and actresses in them. But God is the most marvelous one. And if you look at Psalm 96, verse 3, 
It says here, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. God is the most marvelous one. In Psalm 98, 98 verse 1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. What are some of the marvelous things he's done? Well, think about day one, day two, day three, day four, and day five. Those are some seriously marvelous things. At his right hand and his holy arm have worked out salvation for, man, that's the most, that's a capstone of marvelous things, his salvation. But God created his creation. These are some of the most marvelous things. We think, we we get excited as human beings. Man, that was marvelous. He did three flips on a corkscrew or whatever, you know? We watched a lot of that two weeks ago. That's, wow, it's marvelous. You know, Nathan Chen, you know, jumps up in the air and he does quads. And we see Russian women, some of them do quads. And one day they'll do, you know, whatever, Pinta and Octa and whatever. They'll find ways to spin 10 times or eight times in the, in the air. And we're like, yeah, it's a marvelous thing. But think about just the stars that God put up in the sky. That... What we call marvelous, what human beings do, pales in comparison to the thing God does. I mean, I had to change out light bulbs every month in our house because they go out. Yeah, it stars, I guess some of them go out, but most of them stay in the sky and they shine way brighter with way more power. God is the most marvelous one, and He, what, alone deserves that we would focus Him and recognize Him as the most marvelous one. I know some of us, we think it's a dude with five rings on him. He's the super powerful one that could snap and whatever, five years go away. No, God is the most marvelous one. I don't know how much more I need to say that. God is the most marvelous one. But somehow we're just captivated by these little marvels in this world. Hey, be captivated by the most marvelous one. Lastly, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. I want you to know that God is mighty to save. God is mighty to save. The, the Lord your God is in your midst. He's in your midst. Everyone here on the face of the earth. And the Lord who's in our midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet those by his love. And he will exalt over you with loud singing. I want you to know that our God is mighty to save. There's so much more in context there. And I want you to know that the Lord is mighty to save the dictator of Korea. The Lord is mighty to save that leader in Russia, Putin. The Lord is mighty to save the person we think is too far to be saved. The Lord God is mighty to save. There's no one too far. Our God is mighty to save. I want you to remember that. As you think of our neighbors, our community, your relatives, no one's too far for the grace of God. For many of us, as we heard from Austin, God's grace reaches down, reaches far, reaches where you're at, reaches you when you're running in rebellion and reading, running a hell-bound race. He reaches out to you and rescues you and turns your heart and regenerates and gives it life.